one of the earliest uh, meditation retreats I ever went on, there was a verse tacked on to um, a, a verse written out on a little three by five card, and it was tacked on to some improbable place like the inside of a closet door or some place where I saw it every day and liked it very much and didn't especially get it but liked it very much. And the verse was this. It said, Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a bubble rising in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer storm, a falling star, a phantom, and a dream. It's a verse from the Diamond Sutta. And I liked it a lot. And every year I think I understand it more. What I want to talk about tonight is the way that our experience is like that as well. This experience arises and passes away and then that one and that one and that one and another one all of them arising according to conditions and passing away. And they arise and pass away so quickly that we begin to think that they're tied together. And then we begin to think that they're owned by someone. And one of the things that can happen from paying really close attention and looking very closely and seeing very clearly is that they are independent, conditioned arisings, each of them arising and passing away. So I want to talk about how we can see that, what are the obstacles to seeing it, what are the antidotes to the obstacles to seeing it, and what's so good about seeing it. So I want to start um, by going back to one of Robert's stories last night where he uh, told the story about his friend who suddenly was feeling ill and faint and seemed to be losing consciousness and frightened, thought he might be dying, and reported to Robert that in those moments he had the thought, how long do I have? before I need to let go. And everybody laughed. And I think you laughed, as we all did, because of the notion that we get to decide. That letting go just doesn't happen, that there's someone who lets go. Reminded me in that moment, I decided about what I would talk about tonight, because I thought in that moment of the story that's told about Gertrude Stein at the end of her life, apparently on her deathbed, um, when she felt that her final moment was arriving, she said in a somewhat grand way, um, I accept the universe. And her physician is reported to have said back to her, Madam, you'd better. <laughs> We don't get to choose, actually. (laughs) 
letting go just happens, but there's no one who does it. I'm touched sometimes when I hear people say things like, uh, I'm a person who needs to be in control all the time. As if we are, actually, or could be. Or I'm frightened when things seem out of control. They always are. One of my favorite cartoons, you probably know by now that I like cartoons a lot. One of my favorite cartoons is a cartoon years ago in The New Yorker of um, a man with a big smile on his face walking down a city street, probably New York skyscrapers, and walking down a city street, and he's reading a piece of paper in his hand, and uh, the caption tells you what's on that piece of paper. And it says, cholesterol 170, blood pressure 120 over 80, other good medical findings about himself. It's his report, and all very healthy things about himself. And he's smiling broadly. And unbeknownst to him, falling from some office window <laughs> is one of those great big office safes that people used to have about to land on his head. That's about what it is, you know, with the best blood pressure in the world if a safe falls on your head, which is a condition way outside of what you have anything to do with or be in control of. So there are limited things about which inten- uh, personal intention or local intention arising has something to do with the outcome. Ultimately, it's all out of our control. Things aren't chaotic. I thought about when I, when I was thinking about what to say. I, I thought the reason that things aren't chaotic, say that everything's out of control, is that there are certain social conventions and mores, also conditioned, because they're different in different parts of the world. And there are habits of orderliness in a culture that figured out how to get along with each other. So there are conditioned habits of orderliness, but no one owns them, actually. They're the result of conditions. They're the result of history. They're the result of evolution and how things worked out and how human beings somehow figured out how to stay alive on this planet between all of them. When I first heard, uh, when I began to practice the talk on the three characteristics of um, experience, dukkha, anicca, anatta, actually usually anicca, dukkha, anatta is how it's normally taught, and anicca, my teachers explained, was impermanence, that everything that arises passes away. And I really, I really got that. I certainly got it intellectually. I, I think that um, my experience over years of practice, as I began to really experience it in some intimate way, with every breath arising and passing away, and every thought arising and passing away, and every day the moon arising and passing away, and really paying attention to it. There was actually a qualitative shift, by the way, in my understanding of arising and passing away. There continues to be. And as there was, as it became a visceral knowledge, rather than something that sounded right, it really made a difference in my life. It makes a difference to me to know that everything passes away. 
It makes the difficult times more easy to be with. It makes the wonderful times more, I more pay attention knowing that they are brief. It actually makes all the time more precious knowing that all time, no matter what its feeling tone is, is passing. That all experience is ephemeral. This is the only moment ever. There is nothing but now. But even when I first heard about it, even when I just thought about it, it sounded right to me. And then I heard about dukkha and the pain of uh, being in a life and the expected pain of being in a life because it's all changing, because we lose what we want, we don't get what we want, or we get what we want and it changes so it isn't what we want anymore, or we get what we want and for a while it's really wonderful but then it isn't there anymore. And then we get old and everything changes and that all of experience is continuing losses and that all of life experience is really adapting to loss. And I got that. I got that really, at least intellectually. It seemed right to me. And then they taught the third characteristic of anatta, of uh, selflessness, emptiness it's sometimes called. Non-separate self. That there's no one in here looking out of these eyes or hearing inside these ears or making the decision, take a walk, Sylvia, go get a drink, that all of experience, hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, feeling, thinking, all moments of conditioned arising, not belonging to anyone, no one in there, no solid, separate, enduring self, anatta. And I thought they were wrong, my teachers. Because it certainly felt to me that there was someone in here. I recognized me in here. I felt like there was a me in here. So I thought they were wrong on that. But I thought to myself, two out of three is pretty good. (laughs) And I liked the rest of what they said. I thought sooner or later they'd figure out that they were wrong on the third one. (laughs) And I'd wait it out until they discovered it. But they weren't, actually. Einstein called it an optical delusion, that sense that there's an I in here, separate, watching the action and hearing the action. An I that gets born and an I that dies, the same I that dies. problematic to have that delusion because if we do then we feel separate we feel frightened but it's hard to see around that concept it's actually hard to see around any fixed concept or view I was teaching with my friend um, Sheila sometime last year and uh, we were teaching a retreat together and we would go through the, uh, the mealtime lunch line with everybody else and then we would take our lunches and go sit in a separate room so that the retreatants were in silence but we could talk to each other and plan the afternoon and 
So we'd go down the line in silence, and uh, they had a wonderful salad bar in this particular retreat center. That was the lunch every day. And all kinds of things to make a salad out of. And then at the end of it, um, for several days, they had a beautiful bowl full of crumbled white feta cheese. And uh, we both liked that a lot. So we were making salads and putting a lot of feta on it and enjoying them. And then uh, there wasn't, the feta wasn't there for a few days. And then we went down the line again one day, and she on one side, I on the other side. And suddenly there's the bowl with the white stuff again. <laughs> and I look at her and she looks at me and we kind of give an eye, but you know, you know, we're not speaking. So we're both loading up with... And we go into our adjoining room and we're having lunch and eating away and talking and planning the afternoon. And at one point, we stop and we look at each other and one of the other of us says, are you thinking this isn't very good feta? The other one said, yeah. He says, because it's tofu. But if you think it's feta, <laughs> we keep on thinking it isn't what we get an idea, and then we can't see past that idea. I'll tell you the other story, too. I was deciding whether I could do this all in the amount of time we have. My friend Sheila, in that very same retreat, told a story which I love so much. This is Sheila's story, and it's a story um, that um, goes in a book of stories of the people of Helm. Helm is a mythical town in Poland um, about which there's a whole legacy of uh, funny stories having to do with the people of Helm who have a propensity for just not getting things. They're a little bit foolish in the way that they might see a bowl of feta as tofu. The story she told from the collection of Helm stories is of a man coming down the street and seeing another man coming towards him. And bursting out in enthusiasm and saying, Isaac, I'm so pleased to see you. It's been years since I've seen you. How wonderful that we run into each other. But Isaac, what happened to you? You know, you used to be so robust and really filled out and you look so thin and pale and skinny. What happened to you? And you used to have such a full head of beautiful hair and was curly and luxurious and now you're bald and used to have a great big mustache and curled up at the end and now there's no even hair on your lip at all. What happened to you, Isaac? And the man says, I'm not Isaac. <laughs> and he says, you changed your name also? <laughs> It's a 
great story. It is extremely hard to see past what we think is there. The same. There's no one in there. This practice is designed to have you discover that what's happening is moment-to-moment arising of experience, a breath, a thought, a breath, a thought, a hearing, a breath, a thought, a hearing, a feeling, a sensation, a breath, a thought. We pay really, really close attention, moment-to-moment. That's what we begin to discover. Actually, that's why we have, I, I find it very helpful to use that instruction of, of mental noting, labeling. This, 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 this. One of, the possibi- one of the fruits of that particular method of practice, in addition to it keeps the attention with what's happening, it keeps the storyline which keeps intruding from starting up, is you get to see it's this, and then it's this, and then it's this, and then it's this, and then it's this. What we really practice here in this practice together is a combination of right mindfulness or wise mindfulness, balanced, clear awareness of every moment of experience with wise concentration, composure in the mind, steadiness in the mind. I want to talk for a minute about how that works, the mindfulness and the concentration together. It's really important because in the beginning of a practice period when you all got here, we encouraged you and continue to encourage you to stay primarily with something quite ordinary and quite steady and quite plain, like the breath arising and passing away or the sensations of the body, or of the legs specifically, as we move, or of the whole body, as we practice yoga together. To say with something plain and ordinary and right here, in order to make a certain steadiness, a certain composure in the mind, a certain balance in the mind. What happens day after day as we live here doing this very simple practice in a context, really, of silence and simplicity and stillness, is that the mind becomes really altered, somewhat concentrated. Everybody here is a little bit altered. Within, there are five characteristics of that degree of concentration and alteredness that are themselves the antidotes to those confusing energies that arise in the mind that get in the way of seeing clearly. Here we are trying to see clearly and captivated by lusts and annoyances We fall asleep, we get blurry, we get restless, doubt arises. And we notice it, and we struggle with it. Those hindrance energies, just like anything else, arise and pass away. We talk in interviews about skillful ways to work with them individually. You could do this, you could do that, you could do this, you could do that. 
you could uh, there are specific antidotes for each of those hindrance energies you could also begin to rely more and more and probably you are on the qualities that are part of a concentrated mind to provide the natural antidotes for those five energies those are five natural energies you know they're not the they're not enemies they're actually uh, often very worthwhile resources they help us deal with challenge in some way they they're attempts of the mind they're not the best attempts or the wisest attempts but they're pretty good attempts sometimes to deal with challenge to the mind I'll tell you a story um, I got on a plane sometime in the last year or so coming back from the East Coast and I had been away for about a month and I'd been teaching pretty solidly in a, a number of different places for a month it had been quite intense and it had gone very well but it was the end of the teaching and so I got on the plane and I was particularly happy because it was a Sunday so I could buy a New York Times and I thought great get a New York Times a six hour flight I had the New York I had the New York Times on my lap and I had my knitting under my seat okay I'm set for the six hours I uh, plane takes off and I'm sitting there and I think to myself okay I could read the paper now but I don't feel like just sitting there I thought well all right I could knit I don't feel like actually so in a way that's characteristic to my mind I thought to myself see that I've blown my mind all of my fuses are worn out I can't even read the paper <laughs> I can't even knit you see, yeah, if you know me at all you know that the principal hindrance energy that came with this package is the energy of fretting restlessness which manifests as fretting when in doubt fret so that um, and take a fairly ordinary situation like sitting on the plane uh, and you think to yourself uh oh see I just no more fuses left my wiring is blown out or worse you know I'm losing it because I'm getting old um, so I sit there a while then I look at the person next to me and uh, you already know that I, I mentioned earlier I like cartoons a lot I read them a lot I, ha- I like cartoon anthologies I look at the person next to me he's a man with a laptop computer out on his table little table in front of him and he's very bent over and he's ticking away on his computer and I was thinking about uh, drawing a picture of a frame around him and uh, writing a, a, a <laughs> caption on it man with mindful of restlessness <laughs> then the person next to him because I couldn't tell whether it was a man or a woman was completely wrapped up in a blanket looked like a I don't know what it looked like a mummy or something and sitting in its chair all swathed in a blanket so I draw a little picture around it and say person with mind full of torpor I'm still sitting and they bring the lunch 
I have a lunch. So I'm eating my lunch. The computer guy puts away his computer. He's eating lunch. person unwraps itself from the blanket, <laughs> eating lunch. And I look across the aisle, and there's a youngish man eating his lunch. And he's watching the video. And the, the newest planes have the little videos in the seat back right in front of you. You don't have to look up here. So he's eating his lunch and watching the video. Eating, watching. And I see also that he's got funny headphones on. They're not the airline headphones. And then I see that they're headphones connected to a CD player. So he's eating lunch <laughs> and watching the movie and listening to the CD. And... He's got a paperback novel in this hand up here. So he's got one hand with his fork eating, and he's reading the book, and he's watching the movie, and he's listening to the CD. And I, I drew a picture, a frame around him, and I wrote the caption, Man with mind on the verge of exploding. <laughs> and then I thought it was so funny that I laughed. Ah! Just out of the air like that. Then I realized I don't have my TV on. <laughs> Man next to me is eating his lunch. For all he knows, there's this older woman sitting next to him eating her lunch, laughing out of the blue. <laughs> and I got really embarrassed. <laughs> And it so startled me that it, you know, shook me up. <laughs> and the startle actually woke me up. And I looked back at this young man with all the input, and I thought to myself, he's frightened. That's why he's doing that. And then I thought to myself, so am I, really. Truth is, I'm not crazy about flying. I fly a lot, you know, it's not... It's not a problem for me to fly, but I don't like it. I think it's a miracle that those big iron birds fly, but I'm happy when they land down again. I fly all over the place, but I was tired. I'd been teaching for a month. It's a challenge to get on an airplane for anybody. You get in a metal container with a couple of hundred other people, and it's completely out of your control whether or not it lands. It's completely out of your control whether or not it bounces, how the flight is. Everything, it's, uh, things are always out of our control, really. But in an airplane, it's a sort of exacerbated situation. <laughs> Seems more out of control. Everybody's stressed in an airplane. Every time the mind is challenged, it copes as best it can. Really, that restless computing is a way to keep it probably somewhat calmer from getting stuff done. Taking a nap is a way of coping with the challenge of being tired. Having all that input is probably for that person coping with whatever anxiety about flying. Even if I had drawn a box around myself in the beginning, I would have thought instead of maybe my uh, thoughts
thought about mindful of uh, restless worry, maybe I would have thought uh, tired mind, just sitting. Maybe I would have thought mindful of peacefulness. Actually, I was probably more tired mind, maybe a little bit challenged mind, mind with enough stimulus in it didn't need any more, something like that. I actually think it's remarkable that the mind copes. It's a wonderful thing. It's amazing that it has all those mechanisms. Sometimes people uh, uh, marvel at the way that other people's minds figure out how to cope with difficult situations. Uh, One time someone came to a uh, Wednesday morning class and said, uh, I had a really difficult time yesterday. I came down from uh, my apartment in San Francisco to get in my car. I was just about to put the key in the door, and I noticed that the car was lower, that the ignition, the door key, um, what do you call it, the key hole, was lower than it usually is, and then I noticed my tires were gone. And said, I got so upset about the fact that my tires were gone that I walked two blocks to the nearest shopping center, I walked to Stonestown. I bought myself some new silk pajamas. (laughs) And then I went home and I called the police. And then there was a whole discussion in the class about what everybody would do. People said, you did that? I wouldn't do that. I would go go in. I would find the the superintendent of the apartment building. I'd say, where are you supposed to be watching? Outside? What kind of a job are you doing? And we should have a street patrol. And then I would go to work, and I would give everybody a piece of my mind because I had a bad morning. Why shouldn't they have a bad morning? (laughs) And somebody else said, you did that? You know, if that would have happened to me, it would have wiped me out. I would have gone right back into my apartment, phoned up my job, and said, listen, I can't bear any more stress for today. I'm staying home, I'm used up. And someone else said, you know, my kind of mind, I would have thought to myself, today the tires, tomorrow the car. (laughs) And of course, somebody had to say, you know, I would have said to myself, I always do stupid things. I should never have moved into this neighborhood because mindful of doubt, it's my fault, I did it wrong, I can't make good decisions. Everybody's mind copes with challenge in a different way. Once I told that story and someone said afterwards, I don't get it. Why didn't anybody just go in and call the cops? Which is really, obviously, the clear-minded, balanced response. We often, I think, make the clear-minded, balanced response. Once I told that story and someone said afterwards, I don't get it. Why didn't anybody just go in and call the cops? Which is really, obviously, the clear-minded, balanced response. We often, I think, make the clear-minded, balanced response. But when we don't, we have typical and unique to us, but not unique to human beings, ways of coping. I know about my friends. And they know about me. You know, when you say, what's your sign? I'm a Leo, or I'm a this, I'm a that. I know about my friends whose, what is their uh, hindrance of choice? Uh, Who, given that they are stressed, gets mad? Who, given that they are stressed, indulges a lust? 
who runs out of energy or who gets fretful or who begins to think about themselves in a doubting way. But we don't think of it as a, a, a problematic. It's just the way people are strung. It's just the way people are strung. People understand this is my typical way of responding to challenge. And then they're on the lookout for it. One of my very good friends uh, and I enjoy thinking about the fact that we would both respond to this following phone call in distinctly different ways. The phone call goes like this, ring, ring, hello. I'm calling from the south of France, from Provence, and uh, we have a lot of people interested in Vipassana here, and we plan to put together a Vipassana retreat for um, next spring. And we'd like you to come, and we'll fly you over, and of course we'll pay for your tickets. And uh, My friend would be thinking at that point, such a long flight to Paris, and then you have to take the TGV, and you have to transfer, and and I would be packing probably while on the phone before <laughs> hanging up, because I'm easily seduced by exciting new things that I've never done before. And we'd both go if we were free. The fact that her response is that is that one, and mine the other one nothing to do with what we actually do in real life. You just know about what the habitual response is and you make a clear decision for what's the appropriate response in spite of it. There's a way in which the mind is challenged all the time by everything. Eat breakfast, you go down, you say, oh, Rice cream. I don't like rice cream. I like oatmeal. All right. Okay. Oh, okay. Oatmeal. Challenges aren't very big, but moment to moment, if you watch through the day, oh, it's raining again. Oh, people are banging the doors. Mm, lights on and off. Whatever it is, you know, there are just things always. A new thing is happening, and the mind and body need to adapt to it. Not a lot of challenges here. We plan to we plan the environment to be the least challenging, but still, it's amazing how reactive we are to the challenges, at least in the beginning. And you probably are beginning to notice that over the days, the reactions are a little less strong. People are beginning to tell me in interviews, I hear the doors slam. I have the thought about wonder why people don't hold the doors, but I'm not so reactive as I used to be. You know, it's happening, door slammed, door didn't slam, whatever. That the mind gets more relaxed around the challenges to it. People say, this is what's happening, it'll pass. It's not resignation. I used to think it was something like, oh, this practice is going to do me and I won't be a person anymore. I'll just have to surrender everything. It's not like that. We do have to surrender everything, but it's not resignation. It's the mind relaxes, makes a space. Nothing is that problematic for it. Challenges arise, but they don't create a big stir. They go right through it. I'd like to tell you a formulation which I really love. You don't need to learn this It's not important that you should know what's the antidote for what, in what way. 
but it's important for me to tell you because I love it so much and I think you'll enjoy it. There are those five energies of the mind that confuse it and obscure seeing clearly. The energy of lust, I need something. The energy of aversion, I've got to get rid of this. The energy of torpor, which is really the non-energy of torpor, the, bl- the, bl- the blurriness, confusedness of torpor, and the agitation of restlessness, and the wobbliness, which is how it's described in the text, of the energy of doubt, doubt's a wobbly energy. And the natural antidotes to those five energies of the mind are in a mind that's composed in this way, a mind that's concentrated. Mind that's concentrated has as one of its capacities the capacity to aim clearly at an object, to really notice, that's that, that's that, that's that, that's that. That capacity of aiming is the antidote to torpor. Some people are already discovering that when they start to feel sleepy, there's a way in which as we're getting sleepy and the mind is getting blurry, if you're noting, noting, noting very carefully, and you note, clear, clear, not so clear, not so clear, getting less clear, but you see it clearly, mind clears. The absolute clarity about the non-clearness wakes it up. It's amazing to me. It was an amazing thing for me to discover that I didn't have to take a nap. That if I were careful enough in connecting with what was happening, the mind woke up. Cleared. Energy back. The composed, concentrated mind has the capacity to sustain the attention where it's placed. Sustaining attention is the antidote to the wobbly energy of doubt. The wobbly energy, the sustaining energy, smoothens it out. Just like that. The concentrated mind has a certain quality of calmness about it. That calm is the natural energy to restlessness in the mind. The concentrated mind has a certain amount of rapture in it. It does. Sometimes the whole body tingles. Sometimes really dramatic tingles. Sometimes just really pleasant tingles. Sometimes just a really spacious warmth. Sometimes a feeling of just ease of being in the body. That rapture is the natural antidote to aversion and irritation can't feel wonderful in your mind and in your body and feel irritable at the same time. They don't fit in the same mind. There's enough rapture in the mind. Irritability dissolves in it. There's enough one-pointedness in a concentrated mind to serve as the antidote for lust. Because lust is the kind of energy that's looking around. It's a greedy energy. What else can I see? What else can I get? 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 The one-pointedness is the natural antidote to it. So it's really wonderful to think you don't have to do anything at all in a mind that abides in that level of steady, 
composure, just enough. The hindrances are self-liberating. You don't have to do anything about them. They come up, maybe, momentary, door slams, ah, it's gone. It's a lovely line where it says, all hindrances are self-liberating in the great space of awareness. That spacious, balanced mind, you don't have to do anything about it. They're up, they're gone. That's the kind of balance that we hope to achieve here. Enough concentration to have the mind enough clear, enough of the time, so that we can, for an ongoing period, really see what's happening and what's happening and what's happening and what's really happening without a flurry that distracts what we see. And really, not only what's happening, but what's true about what's happening. Here's a thought, here's a sensation, here's a thought, here's a sensation, here's a sound, here's a sensation, here's a thought, here's an intention. All strung together. So it looks like someone is directing the activity and someone is eating, but someone is doing yoga, someone is taking a shower. Actually, showering is happening and eating is happening and movement is happening, all with intention. Intention arises, then desire arises for something to happen, muscles fire, actions happen all by themselves. It's not that difficult to see it. If you sit down at lunch, you get the lunch, you sit down, and you look at it for a while. You look at it, seeing is happening, and probably uh, salivating is happening, smelling is happening, seeing is happening, probably salivating. Desire arises. Intention arises. Eat the lunch. If you just sat there, you'd actually feel quite tense. Intention arises. Muscles fire. Neurons fire. Muscles contract. And your hand, the hand, picks up the spoon, puts it in the food, and puts it in the mouth. And eating happens. Chewing, chewing, chewing. Swallowing. The spoon is back down on the table again. Sitting is happening. By and by, intention, desire arises again in the mind. Eat. An intention arises. And the hand picks up the spoon and puts it in its its mouth all by itself. The same with walking. With intention, all volitional action is preceded with intention. Nothing happens just by itself. There's desire and intention, and then action. Nobody's doing it. It's happening it all by itself. And if you look for it, you'll see it all the time, because it's always happening. I had a huge hit of it this afternoon, in the middle of the yoga. And I was looking around with 
so clear to me that it's amazing. Sounds happen and uh, uh, cognition happens and the body moves. Intention arises and the body moves. It's amazing to me. All happening all by itself. No one there. I looked around. I thought, no one's here at all. <laughs> then I thought to myself, I wonder who knows that. It's amazing. There's no one here at all. It's just happenings happening. A room full of experience arising with nobody there at all. No one there at all. It's always true, but there are certain moments where you really suddenly have a hit of it. All volitional action is preceded by intention. When intentions stop, when intentions stop, actions stop. If you sit here, there's really no I who's breathing. Breathing happens. Actually, I like to think about the fact that the biosphere is breathing us, or the biosphere is breathing this body. And this body is breathing back into the biosphere. All of the trees and all of the green foliage and all of us are giving each other artificial respiration all the time, trading back and forth on the oxygen and the carbon dioxide, all by itself. No one doing it. Really can't even um, be proud of yourself. I remember uh, realizing at some point uh, early on in my practice, I was feeling proud of myself because I was thinking about my style of practice on retreat, which is very zealous. You know, up early, early, and practicing, 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 and feeling proud of how zealous I am. And I would think to myself, I'm a really zealous yogi. And I thought, it's all conditioned, you know. Given my parents and given their parents, it would be impossible for anything else to be happening with me. It's not actually a choice. Zealousness is present and diligence is present. Following the schedule is happening, but nobody chose it. It absolutely is what had to happen out of me. Can't even take any personal pleasure out of it. It's quite liberating, actually, not to have to do that. It is liberating not to have to do that just what it is because of conditions. Actions matter. What we do matters. So intention matters a lot. I want to say something about that, but I want to also say something about a particular learning that I had somewhere along the line when I had really, I think, understood about no one there all conditioned arising. Um, There's a way in which sometimes that sounds to me, or sounded to me, as if it didn't fully recognize personal pain, personal stories, 
remember uh, a time particularly James spoke the other night about uh, our visit to uh, an uh, Advaita teacher in uh, India in 1990-91 he talked about visiting um, Sri Punja and uh, I was there at the same time with James and, uh, it was a really remarkable experience and Punjaji was a teacher of the non-dual and uh, when we came home from that trip my husband was along with me uh, we were very uh, interested in that concept of the non-dual no one here, no one there and uh, I said to him one evening just talking about the events of the day I told him about something that had happened with one of our children that had upset me I don't know doesn't matter who or what but I remember saying I'm so annoyed at so and so for this and this and he said in the best non-dual way he said where is the I who's annoyed (laughs) and I said don't give me any of that guff (laughs) you and I you and I both know that there's no I here and there's no I there but annoyance exists (laughs) and it is painful and so it's really important to know about that. Emotions are not permanent. They're as ephemeral as everything else, as empty as everything else, but they're as real as everything else. And pain exists. Not forever, but from time to time. And we really need to recognize it and respond to it with compassion. It doesn't do any good to say there's no one who owns the pain. There's no one who owns the pain. But it's painful anyway. Compassion is the response to pain whether or not anyone owns it. No one does. And whether or not it's permanent, it isn't. But it's painful anyway. It's important to say that, especially now in the retreat, because lots of folks here, because we've been here for a lot of time now, have really access to the deepest recesses of memories in their life. And it's normal and actually healing for memories to surface and to be painful as they do. And it matters. It doesn't matter if they're your memories or they belong to someone, whether they're temporal, they're painful. It's consoling, though, to know that they're temporal. It is to me. And it's also consoling to me to know that they're conditioned, that they're there because of something and that the pain that I feel is because of something else because of that then this that it's a lawful cosmos that we each of us inherit in a way far more grand than I can even begin to grok really the karma I think of all being every forever and ever I think about um, the chain of events that ended me up with my parents in my circumstance. They needed to be them, so they needed to have their parents, they needed to have their parents, they needed to have their parents, back forever and ever. And all of those people met each other and did whatever they did in order for me to be here now, dependent on the history of the whole world forever and ever. And if any single thing had been different, this moment would be different and this Sylvia would be different wouldn't be Sylvia, it would be something else it's all 
arising and passing away moment to moment, everything, the result of everything that went into it before. So it's a great relief to know that no one is responsible, everything is responsible. And for me, that still makes it that every unique manifestation contributing to the ongoing karma of the world does have the responsibility of what it puts into it. So that in the realization that I inherit the karma of all the world, it is my intention to put into the karma of all the world the best things that I can. So it conditions the way I want my intentions to manifest in the world. So maybe we'll end a little bit by going back to uh, one more thought about why it's so liberating about not knowing that, about knowing that you're not separate. There's nothing that's separate. Gertrude Stein, I accept the universe. You'd better. I'd like to read you the last page of a book called The Cosmic Code by Heinz Pagels. Heinz was a quantum physicist. His uh, wife, Elaine, is a friend of mine. He uh, did some wonderful thinking in quantum physics. He died um, um, in a, a, a falling, uh, taking a walk in Aspen off a mountain. Actually, he was a climber, and uh, he was just taking a regular walk at the time of his fall. But there was there was loose rock and uh, uh, quite a normal walk. The shale fell out from under his foot, and he fell into a great cavern canyon and and was killed about 10 years ago. This is the last page of the Cosmic Code, which is the last book that Heinz Pagels wrote. I often dream about falling. Such dreams are commonplace to the ambitious or to those who climb mountains. Lately, I dreamed I was clutching at the face of a rock, but it would not hold. Gravity gave way. I grasped for a shrub, but it pulled loose, and in cold terror, I fell into the abyss. Suddenly, I realized that my fall was relative. There was no bottom and no end. A feeling of pleasure overcame me. I realized that what I embody, the principle of life, cannot be destroyed. It is written into the cosmic code, the order of the universe. As I continued to fall in the dark void, embraced by the vault of the heavens, I sang to the beauty of the stars and made my peace with the darkness. Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a bubble rising in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer storm, a falling star, a phantom, and a dream. So we sit a little bit together.
Thank you very much. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at SRNC to Montana Corps slash Part 1 on February 24, 2000. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.